listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome. This is the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I am your host and your friendly neighborhood sexologist, Jessica O'Reilly. And I hope you're having a great day thus far, wherever you are. For me, it's relatively early morning, and I can already feel that today is going to be a very good one. So I hope I can pass some of the good vibes on to you, wherever you are. Today, we will be discussing a serious subject, and I want to offer a caution before we get started. We are going to be discussing sexual violence, sexual assault, and I know that this discussion has the potential to be upsetting and distressful and and triggering for those who have experienced trauma. So before I welcome our guest and delve into the topic, please take a moment to consider whether or not you want to stay tuned or, of course, opt out of listening to this particular episode at this time. And if you could use some support, please contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673 to be connected with a trained staff member from a sexual assault service provider in your area. And these services are offered 24-7 and they are confidential. And in lieu of taking a sponsor for this episode... I've switched it up and I've made a donation to the National Sexual Assault Hotline through uh, RAIN, the organization. And if you feel inclined to do the same, please do so. Every, every dollar, of course, helps. Now, over the past few weeks, in addition to the harassment and assault charges headlines we've been hearing in the news, I've received a number of inquiries with regard to dating and having sex after sexual assault. So uh, we're going to address some of these inquiries. I have a a guest with me today. So I'll read you the first one before welcoming our bright, brilliant guest who has big news from from their own personal life right now on the positive side. So let's start with this one, which I I received um, a couple of times. This one says, how do I have a healthy sex life after being raped? I was raped at the age of 17 by a man 30 years older than me. Now I'm 38 but my body has shut down. I have chronic migraines, depression, OCD, and I've started to learn more about my body since I started following you, and now I want to learn how to find love and a partner who will give me the pleasure of being a woman. Now, each survivor's reaction to sexual assault is unique, and the effects and the process of recovery Um, are obviously different for every person. So joining me to address this particular listener's query, as well as a few others that I've received, is Dr. Ruthie Newstifter. And Ruth is an openly queer, non-binary, kinky, poly-university professor, tenured, and researcher in the Couple and Families Therapy Program at the University of Guelph, just around the corner from me. And they are the co-chair of the Guelph Sexuality Conference, co-host of Sexually Charged Radio, and lead faculty for the Sexual and Gender Diversity Lab. Their work focuses on long-term resilience after trauma, which well qualifies, Ruthie. Mm -hmm. 
to help us here. Um, also, their work focuses on diverse genders, sexualities, and relationship structures. That, that's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot. Thank you, Dr. Jess. And that's because you do so much. How are you? I am doing wonderfully. It's a crisp, cool morning here, and I'm excited to be talking to you about this super important topic. And you have some big news, too, from your personal life. Well, your professional life. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, within the last week, I got tenure. So in the world of academia, you, uh, you get to stay a certain number of years in your full-time teaching job, and then you either get promoted by getting tenure or you get fired. So it's a really big deal and uh, very, very excited that the, the group that kind of convenes to judge if I'm worthy has uh, let me stick around for a bit longer. So that's great. Well, you're definitely worthy, but in your... Uh in your intro that you provided for us, you also identify by a number of um, identities or, or I don't know if you want to call them labels that sure. probably put you at, at a disadvantage as well. So this is quite a, an important piece to be tenured. Is, is that correct? It is. So it gives a, a quite a bit of job stability and it's exciting for me as a queer person, a poly person, a kinky person, all of these identities that are very socially stigmatized to be able to be in a position that, that is stable as a job. It's, um, it's exciting, and I think it shows a lot of positive things about the world moving in, in, in good directions, at least in leaps and starts in different places. And um, to be able to sort of be that role model that it's, it's becoming more and more possible to be your authentic self and uh, still find that successful place of stability, whatever that may be in the world, is is exciting to get to be that role model for folks too. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, being openly poly, uh, polyamorous mm -hmm. costs people costs people their jobs, um, oh, their jobs, their kids, uh, their families, all sorts of things. Right, um, and so this this is a big deal. So, to congrats to you and um, to the University of Guelph for securing you. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Yes. Have you? Thank you so um, much. So let's go back to this this question. So in this case, over 20 years has elapsed since the sexual assault to which um, our listener refers. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, this is, this is a big question. Uh, but when you've been assaulted and presumably betrayed by someone, someone older, perhaps someone you trust, uh, how, do you, how do you even begin to start dating to consider sex? Like, where, what's your, your advice to this person? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm just um, I'm just so moved by this listener's question in that they're talking about how you know they're they're starting or maybe continuing to learn more about their body, to connect more with themselves, to recognize their interest in sexuality, and you know different people will respond to sexual assaults differently to rapes and other forms of sexual assault, and. Um, my heart is so with this listener who has written in and with their strength and with their resilience around recognizing what they want for their present and for their future and moving in that direction. That right there is a huge amount of resilience. Um, and some people will have a sexual assault in their lives and nothing changes. And those folks are rarely captured by the research. Um, folks who, who, certainly uh, had a bad experience of that sexual assault, but continue forward relationally and, and maybe the, um, the repercussions happen in different areas of their lives at all. 
all the way to folks who decide that they really do not want to be around people for the rest of their lives, especially in a more intimate way, and anywhere in the middle. All of that huge range of responses is absolutely normal. And those responses and those kind of uh, things that folks may or may not carry with them can be in the social realm, it can be in the sexual realm, it can be in the relational realm, it can be in different ways that their body responds to touch or the thought of touch and stimulation, uh, which could be anything from uh, kind of exacerbating different symptoms of the body, different aches and pains or disorders to just not feeling real connected with one's body. So there's such a wide range of responses and uh, people will have different kinds of responses and feelings and thoughts about it at different times in their lives and different settings too. So there's no one answer for everybody, but I'm excited to be, to be talking about the steps that people can take. And the first thing, and this is so much easier said than done, is to just be kind with yourself, to just be kind with yourself. Um, there can be so much blame afterwards, right, Dr. Jess? Absolutely, yeah. The sh the, it's common for survivors to feel as though it's their fault, right? Um, and we live in a culture that I think reinforces that, sadly. Yes, uh, we live in a, a victim-blaming culture, this rape culture kind of place that makes humor about it, that blames the victim. And, you know, I think... At the heart of it all, we as, a, we as a culture are scared about sexual assault, very understandably, and we think, well, if we make it the victim's fault, then we could say that the victim could have done something different, and then, um, and then the rest of us are safe, because if the victim didn't do this, that, or the other, they wouldn't have gotten hurt, and so I would never do this, that, or the other, and so now I can feel safe about myself. Instead of recognizing that the responsibility for not raping is on the rapist. That's mm -hmm. how we stop rape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not about drinking less or wearing something different or not going out at night or not walking down that alley or taking the brightly lit path home and these absurd, I, I guess, myths that reinforce rape culture. Yes. The, the only person who can truly stop a rape is the rapist not raping. And that is their responsibility to not do it. And certainly um, there's ways that we can navigate our environment to try to reduce our sense of risk or, or our feeling of what the risk is. But in the end, it is on the person not to rape and not on the person to not be a victim. And remember that most of the folks who are perpetrating sexual assaults are beloved, known, close people to the victim. It's very often um, a lover, a former lover, a family member, a friend, a co-worker. And we're seeing that with this explosion of, of people being held accountable in the media. And uh, these, are, these are folks known. They're not a stranger in the bushes. And certainly a stranger in the bushes or an alley can happen too. But that's not the majority of these things. No. The majority of these situations are somebody who should be able to be trusted. Right, it's, it's far less common to be somebody lurking in the shadows. Um, and and that's, how that's how these people, that's their MO ultimately, is to cultivate some feigned degree of safety and trust. So, it, so when we're talking to this listener, you know, to be kind to yourself and ultimately know that this is not on you as the first step. Um, right. And next, when you know, so twenty years have, el have elapsed. There's, I, I kind of um, summarized the question because it was quite long. Sure. It looks as though maybe she hasn't 
had much, if any, sex since then, and she she wants to try it. So do you think it'd be fair to suggest that the place to begin is with yourself, right? To have, to really explore yourself first. And maybe you're not going to masturbate right away if that's not something you do yet. But mm-hmm. to, to get to know your body, would that be a... An Dr. Jess, that's so wise. Absolutely so wise. So whether or not you have a history of sexual trauma, Uh, bringing the best self that you can into relationships is so important. And to recognize that we as people, and also folks who are women, don't need to depend on a partner to teach or show them their sexual selves. There's so much learning you can do about being comfortable with your body, understanding um, the basics through the advanced of how pleasure anatomy works, and just being comfortable with you. And you know, if you have experienced bad touch from a trusted person, those initial experiences might come in the things. So it could be finding a massage therapist that you're comfortable with. And many massage therapists who are trauma-informed will do work over clothing if that's more comfortable. Ah, okay. And you can have a friend in the room too. Wow. Uh, taking a dance class with uh, a partnered style dance class, even if they just match you up with a stranger there, is a controlled setting in another room where you are learning that you have say over what does and doesn't happen with your body and learning kind of the rhythms of movement with other people and with accepting touch in that way too. Those can be great ways of processing through. being. If you don't want to be um, touched by another person, finding a yoga class and just making sure that instructor knows whether it's okay to put hands on you or not to correct positions and things. All great ways of helping the body learn to be with other people in a vulnerable way that is still safe. That's interesting. And and learning to be able to say yes and no, because you know from yoga, um, even some teachers who will claim to be trauma-informed will walk around and put their hands on your back without asking first. Right, right. And you can call and you don't have to say it's you. You can call or email and say, I'm trying to help my friend find a yoga class, but she's very shy and nervous and she needs one where the instructor will not put hands. Who at the studio would be good at this or who can you recommend? Right. And all, all, all yoga and all instructors should be good at this. And <laughs> consider the fact that you don't just touch people without checking first. Um, and, and it's interesting because just the act of learning to say yes and no is a big part of this because in a victim blaming culture um, and with all this time that has elapsed, I do wonder if, you know, if this listener struggles to say yes and say no, because when she, this person is female identified um, Mm -hmm. from from her letter here, but letter like, like a dove delivered it from her email. I know that women, we do have difficulty. Like we don't want to say no. We want to be polite. We don't want to be the one that, you know, disrupts the yoga class and says, you know, please don't touch me there. You know, sometimes even when I'm getting a massage, um, I, I don't like having my knees touched. It's just a thing. It doesn't have to do with uh, anything, any emotional trauma. I just had some knee injuries when I was younger. Sure. Um, and so I don't like my knees touched. And sometimes I feel badly saying I don't want my knees touched. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm, I was, I was uh, being driven around the other day. I had, I had a professional driver. And when they asked me if the temperature is okay, and I'm too cold, I have difficulty speaking up and saying, even though this, you know, this person's working for me, they're trying to make me comfortable. Ultimately, it's my call. It's, it's my car for the day. 
But I, I have difficulty even saying, yes, it's too cold. Can you turn down the AC? Right. And that's with or without a history of sexual assault and trauma. Um, it can be really difficult to assert those things. So learning how to do that is great. And it may be that the listener feels really great at this in, in ways that, you know, they're better at it than you and I, but it may yeah. be that at some point in dating and sexual relationships, they have to, to recheck in and rebuild those skills, especially um, if it's a new situation for them, they might be discovering new places that can be a bit difficult. The other thing I'm thinking, Dr. Jess, as you talk about this, is that um, it's not unusual for all people, including and maybe especially rape survivors, to worry that they will be a burden on their dating or sexual partner because of this past experience that they may have a flashback or have certain requirements about where or how they're touched or, or be discovering things that are difficult or, the, or even just that are new that maybe they wonder should still be new at their age. And they're, they're worried that someone is dating them in spite of this. And what I, what I really mm. would want this listener and everyone to know is <clears throat> don't date anyone who's dating you in spite of anything. Um, you become, you, you learn such important things about yourself in this world from a trauma event. And you should not have to learn from that trauma event. That shouldn't be how we have to learn things. But you still learn from it and you bring special strengths and special knowledge about yourself and others. You, you bring benefits from learning out of any difficult experience. So no one should love you or lust you in spite of that, but to recognize that this is part of the full package of you and that we all have baggage and you know, a loving person, whether you, you know, just know them for the, for the hour, or whether you know them for life, respects you and wants to be on that journey with you. Right. Yeah. And it's not as though I think there, there's a myth that if you have been sexually assaulted, that you're damaged goods. And it's such a ridiculous myth that again, is reinforced by this victim blaming culture. It's a ridiculous myth. And also there are so many people, it is so common, sexual assault, on all of these different levels, and that can be from verbal coercion to physical battering and everything in the middle that, you know, statistics range from, I don't know, 20% to somewhere around 75 or 80%, depending on the study and the definition of assault. And, uh, and so you are, you are in the company of many, many people. You, um, every person should be going into every sexual encounter with a trauma-informed approach for themselves and for their partners. Okay, I like that perspective. And then, and then finally for this listener who um, is just perhaps getting into dating for the very first time at 37 years old, uh, she, does, she does have a pretty much an adult child she disclosed in, in the rest of her email. So if this is our first time, like we're, I, I love your approach in terms of getting used to physical touch that is non-sexual, whether that be dance or yoga or massage. It's such a, such a valuable suggestion. But like if we get right down to dating, if she is yeah. ready to date, where, where does she begin? Let's do this. So everybody deserves the unconditional support of somebody who is, uh, you know, trained and has experience and knowledge and, you know, in my life, I have a therapist and I am a therapist. So that can be one really valuable resource for that. She can find someone who is specially trained and certified around sex therapy by going to the website for ASECT, which is an international website in spite of the name, American Association for Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, AASECT. 
she can go to that website and do a therapist search. Um, not every therapist who specializes in sexual issues or trauma will be on that list. It's a great starting place. Um, she can be reading great books about sex and dating and interpersonal relationships. I really like The Guide to Getting It On by Paul Janitis. You have so many wonderful books for folks about sex and dating. And I also love the, um, the trauma-informed approach for folks who have uh, been on the victim side of sexual assault or related things. And Stacy Haynes um, has some wonderful self-help workbooks S-T-A-C-I, Haynes, H-A-I-N-E-S. And you can find them on Amazon or on her website. Uh, and those are all great resources for learning about sex, learning about dating, being walked through different activities of connecting with your body, and getting some ideas of how to connect uh, your body with other people's bodies. Okay, excellent. We'll, we'll link those books for you as well. Um, thank you for that. I have a couple other questions uh, that, that are along the same lines, but everybody's story is unique. So I want to share them with you and sure. see if it you know, elicits uh, unique advice. So this one says, uh, this one I feel like you've already addressed and we just need some reassurance. So it says, I was date raped last year. I kept dating. Now I'm in a relationship that started just a few months after the rape. I didn't see a therapist, but I feel like I'm, I'm doing really well. It, obviously it was awful, painful and devastating at the time but I don't feel like it ruined my life or anything. My boyfriend is afraid that I didn't process the experience properly, even though I'm good, we have a happy relationship and sex life. He seems to think I should have had a more traumatic reaction and that something must be wrong because we started a relationship so soon after, but really I'm fine. How do I convince him? And I'll throw it over to you, but I wanna say, you know, first and foremost, you shouldn't have to convince him. Mm. Uh, your response is your own. Some people avoid sex after an assault and really and may pull back from a relationship, and others don't. And and I think while sex can be more difficult after a sexual assault, this isn't a universal experience. So, um, Dr. Ruthie, are we on the same page there? Right on, absolutely. So different people are vulnerable to different things, and it's not um, exciting or interesting news to publish a research paper, or do a news segment on people who are, generally speaking, okay after something. What we hear about is people who struggle and people who suffer. And awareness around both is really important. It may be that something happens in this relationship down the road that this listener needs to process with a professional, and it may not. But what I am thinking in my heart is it could be that this loving, caring partner, who sounds like they really want the best for this listener, maybe they need support because being the partner of someone who has been assaulted either during the relationship or prior to the relationship uh, can, can be really difficult too and make him or her wonder about themselves and the world and being a good partner and, and how, how this impacts them. So it's absolutely reasonable for partners of victims to need or to benefit uh, from some kind of support and assistance and, uh, you know, maybe this would be, and, and I'm not saying like, oh, like she doesn't need it, they need it. But mm -hmm. as a loving thing, we all need support around different things and, and maybe that would be useful for them. Right. That, that's such a good point because being someone who's supporting a survivor can be, you know, challenging, distressful and, and traumatic as well. 
Yeah. It just kind of makes it more real. Oh my gosh, this happened to somebody that I love and sleep with and things like that. Oh my gosh, now I'm really thinking different things about gender in the world and safety and stuff. I need to process this. Right. That's, that's such a good point. Thank you for that. I'm sure that's really, really helpful to our listener. And I have a third one on this topic. Um, this one's shorter. It says, I was sexually assaulted in college. Uh, and since then, sex just doesn't feel good. I don't feel anything. I've been in therapy to handle the emotional stuff, but can you tell me how to feel something again? Absolutely. So the, the body can hold trauma in it. And um, there are all different ways that our bodies and our minds protect us. And sometimes shutting down a part of things is is part of that way that our body has moved in to try to protect us and keep us safe. So, so feeling numb, just not feeling things, just not being interested in things is, is pretty common and pretty typical. Um, I would suggest uh, the listeners processed emotional things that um, a well-trained sex therapist might be the next step in this. Um, you can also be thinking about different modalities. And again, you want the therapist, you call ahead of time, you say, you know, to what degree do you work with this concern? Who can you recommend that's best if it's not you? Uh, sometimes a licensed or certified therapist who uses hypnosis or EMDR, uh, has, both of those have been shown to be really helpful. EMDR is especially uh, popular and in the news right now to change kind of the way our brain and our mind, which is, you know, where all the nerves end up leading up to in the end anyway, processes all this stuff. Um, and that could be really useful to, to focus in on that. And, you know, going slowly with oneself. And, you know, Dr. Jess, you mentioned masturbation earlier. Um, picking up a book by Stacey Haynes or one of those and seeing if any of those activities work. But sometimes we just need to kind of reprogram our minds and bodies a little bit. And those particular types of therapy can be really useful. That's all really useful. And I'm, I'm wondering also if because this person might have been younger, when they were assaulted in college, if there's also perhaps some learning to do around sex, if that was a very early sexual experience, um, if that can be have more of an effect, is, is that the case? Is that a possibility? So, so true, Dr. Jess. Uh, that's a really valuable time for learning one's body and learning about pleasure for many young adults uh, and teenagers. And so it may be that very understandably that learning process paused then and, and learning what... Um, what works for pleasure anatomy, learning about lubes and types of stimulation and finding lovers who are interested in, in her pleasure and what works mm -hmm. specifically for her body and are not selfish or inexperienced <laughs> could be really helpful too. And, and before I let you go, the, you talked about, you know, a trauma-informed sex therapist. Uh, you obviously are a sex therapist. You teach in a sex therapy program. Do you see clients and do you see clients via distance online via programs like Skype or another platform? I do. Yeah, I am a therapist for sexual issues and I am uh, registered in the province of Ontario, which means that I can do therapy for anybody who's residing in Ontario. Uh, most licensed in, in Canada here, we call it registered instead of licensed. Most licensed and registered therapists, um, they can only, you know, practice in kind of their, their home region, their home state or province. Um, but uh, their ASECT is a great place to find people. I am a great place to, to contact and uh, I can always send people a link or try to make a referral. 
Um, so folks are welcome to look me up and contact me. I'm Dr. Ruthie on Twitter. Uh, certainly social media is, is not the place to disclose uh, the, the therapeutic issues, but to just ask about contact and, and um, different kind of links and resources. That's a fantastic way to get a hold of me. And there are so many great professionals out there who have this training, and there are so many great professionals that are not great at this topic and don't have this training. So never be afraid to call or email a therapist and ask them if they work specifically in your area and what level of experience and what training do they have for your topics. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people are really intimidated by therapists. And as someone who doesn't practice, who doesn't have a private practice, but I, you know, I'm on television and people see me and so they like me and they want to talk to me. But I think the reason they want to talk to me is because maybe I don't intimidate them. I don't seem so scary. I don't seem like a, a doctor in a lab coat. And I tell them as I try and refer out to great resources like you need to be demanding just the mm-hmm. way you are when you you know seek out any sort of service you need to tell them what you need and you need to ask for what you want and if they're not meeting your needs don't think that the because they're a therapist that they know better you know best absolutely and myself as someone who trains therapists and works with therapists both new ones and continuing education Part of a therapist's job is to make you feel comfortable and competent. And if your therapist is not doing that and and you're not feeling what you need from this therapist, you can fire them and find another one or not hire them to begin with. That's that's your money and that's your right. The therapist um, absolutely should not be mad or vindictive or blacklist you from other therapists or anything like that. Um, and by, oh my goodness, if you happen to meet one that doesn't, I, I hope this isn't even happening. Um, there are governing bodies. Uh, their, their professional licensing or registration bureau is a place that you can bring that concern to if your therapist is, uh, is really, really just <laughs> not, not appropriate. But that is very few and far between. And your therapist should make you feel comfortable, should help you feel like they're doing all the extrovert work of getting to know you and making you feel welcome in the room and, and making sure that you're comfortable at whatever pace you need. You don't have to sit down and disclose all this heavy stuff. You can say, I want to come to work on some body and sexual things and some trauma stuff, but I will not be ready to talk to you about that this week. Let's just get to know each other and see how I feel with you. Great. Yeah, it's, it's really a therapist's job to meet you where you are. It's not mm-hmm. on them to tell you, this is the program and this is the path. And if they're doing that, they are probably not really trauma-informed. Um, so both Dr. Ruthie and me and my team are really, help, really uh, keen to help you find the support you need. So Dr. Ruthie, I really want to thank you for being here. You are a, a wealth of rich knowledge and really valuable practical insight and advice. So thank you very, very much. Dr. Jess, thanks for having me. And I just can't thank you enough for dedicating some of the time on your show to these really important topics. Thank you for all that you do. A pleasure. Thank you. In addition to the insights and advice and really practical suggestions that Dr. Ruthie has offered, I also wanted to um, offer before we close out some specific strategies on how to support a survivor of sexual assault because we don't spend enough time on this considering how many people are sexually assaulted. So first and foremost, if someone you know or love or someone who comes to you says they've been sexually assaulted, probably the most important first reaction is to tell them 
let them know that you believe them. So don't ask questions that could further reinforce some of the self-blame that they might be feeling. So you're not going to ask questions like, well, why were you alone there? Or what, you know, why were you walking that route? Um, just let them know that you believe them. And uh, let them react as, as they see fit. So whether they're angry and intense or they seem calm and cool and collected, be clear that you're on their side, you trust them, and you're there for them. Because as Dr. Ruthie really well reinforced, there's no universal reaction to a traumatic event or to, to sexual violence and trauma. And it's typical as we mentioned, for survivors to feel as though they are to blame because of toxic cultural norms around gender and sexual orientation and sexual shame. So if you want to be a loving supporter, you can counteract this by reinforcing that they're not to blame. And that's really simply saying the words, this isn't your fault. And of course, listen to them, whatever they choose to share or whatever they choose not to share, respect their privacy and keep it confidential because you may want to fill in the blanks and fully understand the entire incident, but they may not be ready to share. Your job is to listen, really, and, and check in with them to offer support, uh, whether it be that day or in the weeks and months or longer to come. And I think it's really important that you, that we all know our limitations. Uh, you're not their therapist. Even if you're, th if you're a therapist, you are not a friend's or family member's therapist. So help them with referrals, whether it's to a hotline or to a, a therapist. So support them, but also know your limitations. And yeah, you're going to give them love in whatever way works for them. So just because something feels good for you or you perceive or you imagine that something might feel good for you post-trauma doesn't mean that it applies to them. And physical touch can be a, a really significant issue. Again, not for everybody, but for many survivors. So ask before you touch or hug and, uh, you know, ultimately ask them what they need. So I hope, I hope you find those strategies and approaches useful. You know, knowing that sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes, and it doesn't surprise me how many listeners have questions about recovery and survival that relate specifically to sex and relationships. If you're looking for additional support for you or someone you love, uh, in the U.S., I mentioned the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Their number is... 800-656-HOPE or 800-656-4673. And across Canada, there are a number of toll-free lines, including the Assaulted Women's Helpline. Uh, you can reach them at 1-866-863-0511. Thank you for listening today. Thank you so much to Dr. Ruthie. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I hope that Dr. Ruthie's insights have been helpful to you, whether you're a survivor or someone who wants to support survivors who are ultimately all around us. I appreciate that you took the time to listen and also to send in your questions. So please do keep those questions coming. And wherever you are, 
Take some of my good vibes today and have a lovely week. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.